The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Go ahead and grab those and turn to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians, and find chapter 1, and we'll come to the text in just a minute. But uh, first, I want to show you a photo of a gentleman. It's going to be on the screen. There's a bit of a quote there. And uh, I want someone here to tell me who this guy is or was, because uh, you can see it's an old photo, so he's long gone. Uh, Who is this guy? Anyone? Can you, can you read the quote? Uh, the famous escape artist Houdini. Well done, well done, Phil. This is, this is Harry Houdini. And if you're unfamiliar with Harry, good old Harry, he was like the original David Copperfield. He was an illusionist. He was a magician. He was a stunt performer. And like David Copperfield or David Blaine, if you're familiar with him, he would attract thousands and thousands and thousands of people to his performances But the one performance that attracted the most people was his incredible straight jacket escape routine. Sometimes 50,000 people would pack city squares just to catch a glimpse of Harry Houdini as they saw him being kind of tied in a a straight jacket and then turned upside down and hoisted 20, 30 feet from the ground only to watch him every single time escape and break free from the straitjacket. He was incredible. It wouldn't matter how hard the straitjacket was, how tight it was, he would always manage to break free. Now, here's the thing about this series that we're in, the Come and Adore Jesus series. As I've been reflecting on it, you know, this series where we've been investigating some of Jesus' titles and images, I've come to realize that like Harry Houdini, Jesus always breaks free from our theological straitjackets. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes when, when, you, when you think as a Christian, you know what, I'm familiar with the Gospels and the New Testament, and, and I'm not too sure if there's anything more to learn about Jesus. All of a sudden, often in the Gospels, you, you see an aspect of his being or character often reflected in one of his innumerable titles that breaks him free from those straight jackets. You know what I'm talking about? The 18th century theologian and pastor, Jonathan Edwards, he said this about Jesus. He said, in Jesus we see, quote, an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. An admirable conjunction of diverse uh, uh, kind of qualities or excellencies. That is, in Jesus we see virtues and qualities we would often consider incompatible in the same person. And yet in Jesus we see these qualities come together. We see these excellencies and these these, uh, characteristics fused together, being perfectly married and wed in him, which makes his person strikingly appealing and and uniquely awe-inspiring. For example, in the Gospels, we see Jesus as the majestic one, right? In the Gospels, we see him, you know, with the, with the power and the authority. He walks on the water. He, he, he raises the dead. He drives out demons. He heals the lepers. He does incredible things. Mighty power. But, but all the while, he's humble about it. He's not like Bruce Almighty. Have you seen the movie? I've got the power. It's not like that with Jesus. He's very humble about his majesty. Also, Charles is laughing. Also, in the Gospels, Jesus 
is utterly committed to what is right, to what is just, to what is fair, while simultaneously being very merciful and approachable. Often you don't find that in people, right? Normally when you find someone who's kind of gung-ho about justice, they're often quite cold and, and harsh, but, but not Jesus. He's, he's all for justice, but he's very approachable as well. Also in Jesus in the Gospels, we see tenderness without weakness. We see boldness without harshness. We see meekness without uncertainty. And also he has this insistence on truth, but it's always bathed in grace and love. And as we've noticed ourselves in this series that we've been in, Jesus is the champion. He's the mighty one who fights for us and wins things for us. But, but equally, he is the bridegroom who, who lovingly you know, uh, cares for us and he's committed to us for our good and holiness. Also, Jesus, as we've seen, is the Alpha and Omega, the first and last beginning of the end, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. But also, he is our advocate the one who wonderfully stands in the presence of God for us as our perfect defense attorney, as we wonderfully saw last week. On and on and on and on we could go. And so if anyone ever says, you know what, I've got Jesus in my theological back pocket, they don't know what they're talking about. They're certainly not referring to the biblical Jesus because the Bible says not even the highest heavens can contain him. And so today, church, we're going to investigate another title of Jesus that, that blows him kind of free from all theological mental straitjackets. And that title is Jesus is the Almighty Son. Jesus is the Almighty Son. This description, this title, Almighty, is taken from Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. The Apostle John, he catches this glimpse of heaven, he sees the risen Jesus, and he calls him there in verse 8, the Alpha and Omega, and also he calls him Almighty, Almighty, that is Yahweh. And so for us to get behind this title, we need to turn to the passage we're in, in Colossians, which is one of the most elevated passages anywhere in the New Testament concerning the person of Jesus, because it's all about his supremacy. And so if you've got Colossians open now at chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 15 and read down to verse 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That term for firstborn is mentioned twice here in this passage, and it's going to be the key word today. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn, there it is again, from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy that's the key. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so, two things about Jesus' supremacy or almightiness this morning, and then two ways his supremacy is to influence and impact our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we, we humble ourselves before you as we consider your superiority, your majesty. And Lord God, we do see in you these diverse qualities come together. And so I pray, Lord God, would you encourage us? Would you give us courage? Would you strengthen us? Would you help us be more committed to Jesus? 
Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, two things about the supremacy of Christ. Uh, the first is that we see Jesus here in our text as being the supreme one over creation, the created world. This is kind of a scene in verse 15. Uh, this is hit home for us by the key term firstborn. Listen to what he says again. The son is the image of the invisible God. And then he has the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn. Now, this is huge, but what does he mean? The term firstborn in Scripture can mean one of two things depending on the context. It can mean first in order, like first in the series in a chronological sense. And so last night at the carols, I introduced Kaylee to a guest, and I said, this is, this is one of my daughters. I've got three girls, and she's my firstborn, right, first in the series. I've got three kids, but she was the first kid off the rank, so to speak. So it can be used that way. And normally we use it that way, don't we, in our English-speaking world, firstborn. But also in Scripture, firstborn can also mean first in position or first in order, the one who has authority. And so as a parent, I have three girls, and I'm supposed to have authority over them. That, that sense, you know, sometimes they think they have authority over me, and they do boss me around a bit. Um, they have me, you know, wrapped around their little finger. Uh, but it's that sense. And so these two meanings are, are equally conveyed in Scripture. So question, it's a bit of a question for you. Which, was, which one is it here in verse 15? Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Is it the, the first meaning or the second? Well done, Grace. Grace. <laughs> Hedging your bets, huh? Both. Well, it's the second. It can't be the first because he's not a created being. He's not the first created being. That, that was a fourth century heresy, an Arian heresy. And today, that heresy is espoused by those who knock on your door, the JWs, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is supreme. That's what firstborn means. He's the one who stands over his creation. Now, now once you start to tease out what this means, that Jesus is the supreme one over the material cosmos, it's staggering. Talk about, you know, exploding straitjackets. Uh, and, and Paul does that for us now as he, as he teases this out for us in verses 16 and 17 because he shows us how Jesus as the supreme one relates to creation. And he relates to it impressively in four main ways. Number one, he existed before creation. Verse 17, he is... Paul simply puts, but it's staggering, profound, he is before all things. Which, which means, as, as the Son of God, he eternally existed. He has eternally existed. Which means, Jesus, as the Son of God, is his own cause. He is his own source. You've ever hired out a generator. You know, the power's gone down, and you get a generator. And what does it need to keep it going? Fuel. You need the fuel in the generator. But Jesus doesn't need anything external to keep him going. He, he's the generator that doesn't need fuel. Why? Because he is the fuel. He keeps himself going. There never was when he, namely Jesus, was not. Amazing. The implication is, of course, he is therefore distinct from creation. He cannot be, I guess, entwined with his creation in the sense of worship. This is why idolatry in both the Old and New Testament is condemned because Christ God, the Son of God, is distinct from it. He's separate. He's the Holy One. He's other. He's other. That's the first incredible thing we're told about Jesus' relationship with creation. He's distinct from it. Secondly, he is the uncaused cause of all things. 
verse 16. We're told this twice. In him, all things were created. Listen, nothing can produce something. That's a scientific impossibility. Nothing can produce something. Everything there is in the material world and material cosmos must have been brought into existence by something that already existed. And that something is someone. It's, it's Christ. He kicked it off. He got the whole thing going. He got the whole thing started, which, when you stop to think about it, is incredible. It's dazzling. It's dumbfounding. You know, I've, I've been messing around on, on YouTube this week in the office, and I, I don't always do that, all right? I get paid to do other things, like pastor people, um, but I've been on YouTube, and for good cause, a good reason, I've been, I've been watching videos on the size of the earth compared to the universe, and let me encourage you to do that. It's incredible, and, and our earth is big. How many of you have been a backpacker? I have. It's a, it's a big place, right? Our home, the planet, is not small, but when you compare the earth with our sun, it's a pinprick. Seriously, it's so tiny. But then when you compare our sun with the largest known star, and it's named this kind of strange name, I can't pronounce it. It's the largest known star. Our sun is like a pinprick in comparison with the largest known star. And that's only the largest known star. But then when you take that largest known star and compare it to our galaxy, again, it's like a pinprick in comparison with our galaxy. But then when you take our galaxy and compare it with other galaxies out there that dwarf our galaxy, our galaxy again looks like a pinprick. But then when you take those galaxies that dwarf our galaxy and compare it to the universe, those galaxies look like a pinprick in comparison. The bottom line is the universe is big. It's vast. And we're told that Jesus kicked it off. He got it started for crying out loud, which means he's not a puny, pathetic, weak, frail deity who's in heaven going, please worship me. You know, I'm alone. I'm all alone up here. He's the almighty one. You know, <laughs> yes, uh, Friday afternoon, Schmel Hill and I, we, we came in here late afternoon. It was stinking hot in here. And we came in here to, to put up the fairy lights. You saw them last night. And look at them, you know, what, 200 lights, it's not very wide, and I had the job of going up and down the ladder, and it was really hot in here, and sweat was pouring off me, seriously, I said to the guys, man, it's hot in here, and I was just stringing up those few, a few fairy lights, and yet we're told in Scripture that Jesus created the stars, that he stretched out the heavens, and he did it without breaking sweat, unlike me. He did it without any lactic acid in his muscles. Just, there they are. They're the stars. What it says in Genesis. Oh, they made the heaven and the earth. Oh, by the way, he also made the stars. It's like, there, just a side note, footnote. Just made the stars. It's like, what? Jesus is incredibly vast. He's powerful. Listen, how big is your Christ? How big is your Savior? Is he? Or is he? How big is he? He existed as the uncaused cause of all things. Number three, he sustains all things. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him, this is equally incredible, and in all things, he holds them together, and in all things, are held together in him. Again, this is a staggering thought, that Jesus is the glue that keeps the whole, new, whole universe together. He's the lung that keeps the whole universe breathing He's the, he's the heart that keeps the whole universe pulsating and throbbing with life and energy. And if for a moment he, he ceased to uphold it, it would immediately disintegrate and crumble. Immediately. 
This is a big God we're serving. Just, just like our, our, our skeletal structure upholds and, and uh, uh, sustains our, our muscles and, and flesh, uh, so Christ, he's the structure that upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. Incredible. Number four. Do you think that's incredible? It's amazing. Number four. This is the logical conclusion. He is the goal or the purpose, therefore, of creation. Verse 16. All things have, their, have been created through him and, listen, for him, for him. That should make logical sense. Since he is the source of all things, since he is the sustainer of all things, then surely, surely he has the exclusive right and prerogative to receive adoration and worship and praise and honor and devotion from his creation, including us, all of us. And so it should be the most natural thing to pay homage to him, to worship him. We were made to do that. As someone once said, we were not only made to worship, we were made worshiping. Big difference. Which may, means that it's the most unnatural thing, albeit sinful thing, not to do that. Not to do that. To worship Christ. You see, this is why we've called this Christmas series, Come and Adore Whom? Not Santa Claus, but Jesus. Because he is the supreme one, the source, sustainer, and the satisfier of all those who trust in him treasure him. And so this is the first thing we're told by Paul in this elevated passage about Jesus' supremacy. He is supreme over creation, but he continues, and so must we. He goes on to tell us that he's not only supreme over creation, as you know, if you may, old creation, but he's also supreme over a new creation, a new order. And this is teased out for us in verse 18 with the key phrase, firstborn. Again, listen to what he says. And he is the head of the body, the church. That, that's big. We haven't got time to get into it and dig into it. We will at a later stage, no doubt. But listen to what he goes on to say. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Firstborn from among the dead. Now, as we noticed earlier, this, this term firstborn can mean two things, one or two things depending on the context. And so it can mean first in the series as in Australia won the first test in the Ashes series. Boo. Boo, boo, boo. Oh, thank you. <laughs> or it can mean first in rank superiority, as in Australia, our superior cricket team to England. I, 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 I was going to reverse it, but uh, I don't want to be deported. And it's true. I think Australia at this stage, they're a better test team. It might be a whitewash. Someone said to me at the carols last night, how's England going? I said, they're going home. They're not home. We're 5-0. 5-0. But what I didn't tell you about this term, firstborn, and grace, this is where your redemption comes in, it can mean two things at once. In some cases in Scripture, it can mean both things. And I think this is one of those occasions because, as, as Paul explains, Jesus is the first resurrected being, that the first human being to literally resurrect from the grave. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, what about good old Lassie? What about Lazarus? Caught you out. He was in the, de- he was in the grave for days. Jesus said to, you know, his sisters, I'm the resurrection and the life, and And the King James Version says he stinketh in the grave. And he lifted him from the tomb. He resurrected him, right? No, he didn't. He resuscitated him. 
It's a big difference. Oh, okay, clever boy. What's the difference? Well, resuscitation means that you are alive, but you're going to die again. That's what it means. But resurrection means you are alive and you're never going to die. That's the difference. And, and Christ is, is really the only one who has experienced that. He's the resurrected one. And so he's now in a realm, a completely new realm of being, resurrection existence. And as we told in 1 Corinthians 15, he is the first fruits, meaning that, that now that he's alive, when he comes back, all those who treasure him, they're going to follow suit. They're going to be resurrected as well. And so, yes, in that sense, Jesus is the firstborn among the dead, the, the first in a series. But, but Paul, I believe, is, is kind of hammering out a, a more wonderful, glorious truth. And that is, Jesus is supreme over death itself. That now as the resurrected one, he's inaugurated a whole new order, a whole new humanity, a whole new creation because of his resurrection power. And I think this is what John means in 1 John 5.11 when he says these words, God has given us life. Listen, God has given us life. What kind of life? It's deathless life. It's resurrection life. And, and where is it found? And this life is in his son, the deathless Christ, the resurrected Christ, the one who's supreme over this new creation. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. They don't have, this is tragic, this is sad. They don't have deathless life. They have life that will end in death. And if you're here today and, and you on this journey, you don't know Christ yet, let me encourage you this Christmas, investigate him. Like seriously investigate him. Don't, don't go off what other atheists are saying about him. Get into the word yourself and, and, and read the gospels for yourself. And maybe pick up a good book about the person of Jesus and the, 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 uh, the reliability, the authenticity of the historical Jesus for yourself. That's what I encourage you to do this Christmas too. As Dash mentioned, prepare room in your heart for him this Christmas too. You can do that. And so this is, this is what Paul is saying about Jesus, the firstborn from among the dead. Yes, he's the first one, but he's the supreme one over the grave. And he's bringing about, wow, how in you, through his people, filled with the spirit, the risen spirit is in us. And as we take forward the gospel, as we advance the gospel and the kingdom, this whole new order is being established on the planet. And it will be fully consummated when Christ returns and resurrects not only us, but he restores the whole order. That's why in verses uh, 19 and 20, we're told that, that through his death, he's bringing about this reconciliation of heaven and earth. It's the whole cosmos that's been affected by the curse, and he's going to restore everything. And so talk about having the supremacy. This is why we read in verse 18, at the end of verse 18, we, we're told that in everything, he might have the what? The supremacy. Everything, old creation, new creation, everything in between. He's the almighty one. He's the preeminent one. He's the superior one, the one we worship. And so those two reflections on the supremacy of Jesus. Okay, implications. How will this reality, because it's a staggering reality, influence our lives? How is it to impact our lives? Well, a number of ways but at least, very least, these two main ways. Number one, courage, courage. I was uh, reading just recently of a pastor in the US, this is a true story. 
And he decided in his church just to preach exclusively, solely on the enormity and the majesty and the wonder of God. And so his sermons, they weren't very practical. They didn't have much application. It was just he wanted to present that portrait of God to his people week in, week out. Just God is great. God is glorious. God is huge. God is majestic. But unbeknown to him, there was a family in his congregation who had just received the most devastating, traumatizing news. And that news was that their little kid was being sexually abused by a close relative. And, and as you can imagine, they were devastated. And here's this pastor. He's not being very practical in his sermons. He's just, here's the bigness of God. Here's the vastness of God. And here's this poor family suffering all the while, trying to deal with the pain and the struggle. After one of the sermons one Sunday, the dad, the father, pulled aside the pastor. And he said, Pastor, you know, this is the hardest time in our lives. It's been so hard. It's been heartbreaking. And yet what has given us courage, what has given us hope throughout this has been the picture and the portrait of God that you've given us week in, week out because we've come to realize and see that we are in the hollow of the hand of the one who is over all. And even our situation, as devastating as it is, is in the hollow of his hand and so we feel secure. You see, church, this is what we need when the mountains of hardship and difficulty loom over us and we are afraid, thinking that those mountains are going to fall on us and crush us. We need a God that is larger, not only than the mountains, but larger than the universe. And we have this in Christ. We have it in Jesus. And yet the sad reality is, for far too many of us, when we experience hardship, our God, our perception of God is not very large. It, it's not like this. A Bible translator, in fact, he, he translated the Phillips translation, J.B. Phillips. He also wrote a book, it was a very well-known book about 50 years ago, and it was entitled, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. And it's the sad reality. Often when we face hardship, our perception of God is far too small. Listen to me, supremacy, you've been thinking about Jesus' supremacy, supremacy means sufficiency. I want you to remember that. Supremacy means sufficiency. He's sufficient in your hard times. Whatever you're facing, whatever difficulty we may face as Christians, maybe you're young, you're like, eh, life is cruisy. Well, for now. And when that hard situation hits, guess what? Jesus is going to be there for you as the supreme one. And he'll be sufficient, more than enough for you. As a, a young Christian, you know, some of you know this story. I got saved in Australia as a backpacker. That's why I know the earth is big, because I was a backpacker. And um, I got saved, and I went back to the UK. And some of you know, uh, I wasn't born, raised in a religious Christian background. And I went back full on for Jesus. But I didn't have a faith communion. I didn't have any friends, Christian friends that I knew. And, and I was really, really full on for Jesus, like really full on. You think I'm full on now? I was full on, like full on. And my family, because of that, uh, thought that I'd gone cuckoo. And so they started to kind of, you know, think, oh, this is a bit odd. And by the way, my dad listens to these sermons in the UK. So dad, just want to take this opportunity to apologize for my craziness. I still love Jesus. I'm still full on for him. And, and so they, they just didn't understand. And I, and I felt very isolated. And you know what pulled me through? Passages like Colossians chapter 1. 
Seriously, I lived in this passage as I just thought about my situation. And, you know, my situation seemed so big, but then in comparison to the supremacy of Christ, it was nothing. And I experienced that courage as a result. Secondly, commitment. First courage, commitment. Commitment. This is just teased out for us in the surrounding context. So many times, commitment, meaning loyalty to Jesus as the supreme one. Surely we're to be loyal and dedicated to him. Listen to what Paul says in a number of occasions. I'm going to kind of fly through these. Just listen. Don't try and flick because you'll lose your way. He says in verse 2, To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, the faithful brothers, verse 4, Because we have heard of your faith or your commitment, your loyalty to Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you. And he goes on to say, we haven't stopped thanking God for you. Verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras, that is the gospel, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful, loyal, committed minister of Christ on our behalf. Verse 22, but now you've been reconciled by Christ's physical physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if if you continue in your faith. That is, if you remain committed and loyal to the Supreme One, the Son of God. Verse 5 of chapter 2. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is how loyal you are, how dedicated you are. No matter what's going on, you're, you're loyal and committed to him. And as a people, since he is our supreme God and savior, the one who is supreme over the old creation and this new creation, which we are a part if we love him, we are to be loyal and committed to him. He is, in other words, to be on center stage. Center stage in our hearts. I'll close with this. The great author, uh, um, the artist rather, and there's a picture Very well-known picture. Who knows this painting? Very, very famous, The Last Supper. And who was the artist who did this? Leonardo, not DiCaprio, but Leonardo (laughs) da Vinci. And upon completion, he was just about to complete the picture, the painting. And he turned to one of his trusted friends, who was also an artist, I believe. And he said to his friend, so what do you think? He said, Leonardo, this, this is amazing. This is, this, this is a work of art. <laughs> and, then he, and then he made com- a few comments about the picture. And, and then he kind of honed in on the cup that was in Jesus' hand. He says, oh, that's, that's marvelous. No cups on the table. That cup that you know, Jesus is holding here, the Last Supper cup, is, it's sublime. It's wonderful. And, and at that, Leonardo started, it's a true story, started to paint out the cup. He started to erase it. And that, that his friend said, what, what, are you, what are you doing? And Leonardo said this, nothing must distract from Jesus. He must be the center of it all. The center of it all. And that's why now, if you look closely at the picture, when you go home, you YouTube this, you can see Jesus' hand is going to open. It's supposed to be holding the cup, but there's no cup there. <laughs> because he is the center of attraction. And so as Christians... What is it sometimes that distracts us away from Jesus? Many things, work and family, good things that sometimes become ultimate things. Come on, he's the supreme one. And so let's commit ourselves to him. Let's be committed to him, Lord him, faithful to him. Let's make him the center of it all from our hearts to the heavens. Jesus be the center. Why? Because it's all about you 
It's all about you. How about we stand? Thank you, Jesus. Lord, there's a lot to ponder on. Do you, do you feel safe as a Christian this morning? As Christians, we ought to feel very, very safe. That we are in the hollow of an almighty hand who spun the universe into being, who maintains it by the word of his power, who through that same creative power gave us existence and also caused us to be born again. And with that same mighty word, he promises to remake everything, to renew and restore everything including us. He's going to restore us and resurrect us. Never again will we face cancer cells or arthritis or anything else. We'll be with him and each other for all eternity. How safe do you feel? How secure do you feel? How does that influence the situation or situations that you currently find yourself in? Let's think. Let's ponder, let's pray. Lord God, come on church, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Jesus.